I'm a writer. I love writers and I coach writers. So it makes sense that I'd interview writers from all areas, blogging, TV, film, songwriting, podcasting, but also the new writers, the first timers that did it, that took the plunge because at one point they heard from someone, you should write a book about that. Since 2016, Elisa Zapersky has been blogging about her experiences as a millennial woman trying to live a full life while healing from her abuse. As many of you know, I am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, and I'm so thrilled that Elisa is my first guest who has written a book in this space about her healing. And frankly, I am shocked as a host that it's taken me this long to have someone on the show, considering what an advocate I am in this space. But, you know, we we have it when we have it. And I get the gem of Elisa today. She wrote a book called Healing Honestly, The Messy and Magnificent Path to Overcoming Self-Blame and Self-Shame. And we're going to chat today about her process of writing this book, as well as her journey with abuse. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Kim. So I love that the dedication of your book is to your grandmother. And you said, we wrote a book. Isn't that just nuts? Tell me a little bit about her influence on you as a writer. Thanks so much for asking about her. My grandmother, Charlotte Sapersky, who we all called Shashi, all the grandkids, but it was actually a childhood nickname of hers. She and I were extremely close. And she became one of the most fiercest advocates for me when I decided to start speaking publicly publicly about my childhood sexual abuse. And I was so worried, you know, to tell her both about what had happened to me, but now that I wanted to write about it on the internet and I write, you know, I I started healing honestly to talk about all these different aspects of my life and how trauma was impacting them, including my sex life. And I was like, oh my God, my grandmother's going (laughs) to read about my sex life on the internet. Like, oh my God. Right. And so I did what any mature adult would do. I had my mother tell her mother that I was going to do this. <laughs> right. <laughs> On the phone. And she, exactly. And she she wrote an email back to my mom about the request. And she said, effectively, these eyes and ears have heard and seen a world of stuff that offends, jars, injures, dispirits the soul and the self. You tell Elisa, if she can mm. handle it, so can I. Amazing. That's the woman that she always was for me. And even, you know, later in her life became even more of a sort of fierce advocate. So I'd write these stories about, you know, my trauma impacting my sex life and my dating and relationships. And I'd post it, you know, on social media. And there, without a doubt, every time on Facebook, the first like would be my grandmother. Oh my God. Every time, every time. And she would write these, I have every birthday card she ever wrote me. I have my letters from her from when I was in summer camp, all her emails. She was fucking hilarious. She has dry wit, the sarcasm. And I mean, my family are the, the funniest people I know. And she had this way of speaking to like the the devastation of being alive and also the absurdity of the human condition um, Mm. in a way that was so funny, so loving, so warm. And I'd always tell her, I'd say, Shashi, you are my favorite writer. Um, And she died shortly before the pandemic began, but she got to see, you know, this work take off. And that meant so much to me. And, And I know that 
for as many people in my life are so championing me in this work, no one would get a bigger kick out of it than my grandmother <laughs> that we wrote right. a Fakakta book. Can you believe it? Amazing. And you're breaking a legacy, right? Like, do you think that there was usually abuse has a history? It, it rarely starts with just us. And a lot of times those people are dead, so we can't really ask them. Did it ever come up that there might have been history prior to your history in the family? Not in that part of my family and my maternal lineage, but I mean, that was sort of one of the most overwhelming parts about becoming public in my survivorship is that I had expected in writing on the internet, as I do, that mm -hmm. I would hear from people who, you know, from all walks of life who had experienced what I experienced. The first survivor who ever really reached out and connected with my work is actually in India. And oh, wow, uh, yeah. that's amazing. And she and I built this beautiful cross the globe friendship. And I consider her such a part of my support team and vice versa. And so the first like really like stranger human connection of like community that I felt was actually mm -hmm. from somebody living very far away. But the part that I wasn't prepared for was hearing from all the people who already were in my life who had experienced childhood sexual abuse or experienced it in their families. I had friends of mine sharing my blog, you know, on their websites or on their social media, and they would hear from their parents and they, oh. their parents would be like, oh, I never told anyone, but you know, this happened to me when I was a kid. Wow. And so the first like two years of being public was sort of being inundated with the understanding in real time that child sex abuse had been around me always. And that always. I had always been mm -hmm. surrounded by survivors but in my community, we weren't talking about it. I come from a really privileged, elitist, Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. suburb, you know, Jewish community called Bethesda. And, and just like every other community in the world, we told ourselves this was somebody else's problem wow. and that this was othering. And what I have learned is that every community tells themselves that lie. Right. And that all of us, whether we know it or not, are surrounded by survivors. Absolutely. It's just like, it's like anything else, like alcoholism, right? Like you don't really know anybody who's in AA and then all of a sudden, you know, you become part of AA and like you learn there's all these other people in AA. It's like with any kind of diagnosis, it's with any kind of, you know, disease, it's with any kind of mental illness, it's with any kind of, you know, system, right? That mm -hmm. hasn't been exposed. And now we're starting to expose this system. So you're blogging and you're reaching out to people across, across the universe. And then I get this impression that this was a need first from just like a self-expression place. And you've mentioned the response to the blog, but specifically about the way you wrote the blog, what were you most surprised of in terms of the reaction to your writing? I think what surprised me was that every time I thought there was something that maybe I shouldn't say because <laughs> it might isolate me or be a really niche experience was always the thing that ended up being exactly what other people needed. And I think like there is this funny thing on the internet where there's a lot of like following of trends and search engine optimization and like see what people are searching. For and, blah, 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 blah. and it's like, if I had followed sort of this formulaic approach, I would have like completely missed the ball 
Because in fact, the most important things I could say were the things that I, I wasn't seeing on the internet that actually made me feel isolated. That made me feel shame. The fact that I have body memories and not clear narrative memories of my abuse, I thought invalidated me and made Mm -hmm. it so that I couldn't speak on this. Little did I know that being explicit about that would be the single most important thing that I could share with other people. And so that was a really big lesson. And the other lesson was that all the things that I felt sort of that I had challenges with or where I felt sort of left out of the survivorship conversation were what other people in my own community were feeling as well. You know, I wanted a place on the internet where like we could make jokes and pop culture references and use the same language to talk about living with trauma and living with our abuse as we do with every other aspect of our lives. That's right. And it turns out that like, <laughs> I wasn't alone in that. And that, That's right. you know, I think starting out, I didn't know this and I don't know why I didn't know this, but I quickly learned that like, I am my audience. <laughs> you what are. I like and what makes <clears throat> me feel safe mm-hmm. and what makes me feel comfortable and what makes talking about these stigmatized issues approachable to me is also what some other people will also connect with too. Yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of being writers is that we get the task of writing about what nobody else wants to write about, but what they're thinking about all the time. Like if I write about like being exhausted and I write about like all the ways that I feel shame about being exhausted, I get a million me too. It's like, oh my God, I was exhausted and I just was trying to power through or I was doing this everything. I mean, dating, all of it. And it's true. Like when I first started talking about sexual abuse, I thought it was really dirty and shameful. And I thought people would put me in a box like, oh, you're now that girl that now like Mm. that, like they'd think I was enraged. I think you talk about that in your book. Like we have a certain way that people think we're going to be like, we're going to be these like angry, like feminist, Mm. you know, man haters and it's so much more nuanced than that on so many levels. And and you get into that beautifully in your book. Do I will say though, I do, yeah. I do identify as an angry feminist. I am an, enra- <laughs> I am a perpetually enraged feminist. So I do have to say that is, but true. that might just and be also, you. <laughs> yeah. And also I am a whole host of a lot of other things. You know, I think that what I tire of is this trope of survivor to thriver and that this idea Mm. that we live in this binary where either we are like victims to be pitied or we're then like bizarrely like glorified as like we overcame this thing and like now look how we're thriving and we can tell everyone else how to live too and I just I just reject That binary, it it doesn't feel true to me. It doesn't feel true to what I understand about what healing means. And so, yeah, I mean, I think for me, I'm perpetually running up against that sort of expectation and trying Mm -hmm. my damnedest to bulldoze right through it. (laughs) Right. And I think in your book, you know, you address that beautifully uh, and all the all the various aspects and nuances of being a survivor. And you're right. It's not like, okay, done. Okay, all all finished. You know, now we're just going to make lots of money and like fall in love. And yes, I think that a lot of us were held back from a lot of things that we could have because of the shame and low self-worth that we've had to overcome. But that doesn't mean just because we get better means those things are just handed to us, right? It's still a process. 
When you decided to put your blog into a book, did you have any trepidation about whether that it would translate? I actually, (laughs) so I was approached to write a book by an editor who had found my work on the internet and who beautifully now full circle is, is my editor and my publishing house, Barrett Kohler, which is based in the Bay area. And I happened, I live in DC, but I happened to be in the Bay shortly after she contacted me. So I was like, I'll come meet you. And I sat in her offices and she told me why she thought I could write a book. And my response was, yeah, maybe in 10 to 15 years. And she said, you know, it's funny. I approach men about writing books and they're always ready. And I approach women. They always say in 10 to 15 years. 15 years. <laughs> and that's like kind of what I needed, you know? And it was so funny because in that conversation, I was like, I can't write a book because I hate everything that's out there. And then I just vented at her for like 20 minutes about how frustrated I was. And I was like, I can't see a book because I'm, I don't want to write a memoir. Right. And right, right. I don't want to write this like clinical thing either. And, and so there isn't this other thing. And so I can't do that. And then she just sort of let me go. And at the end, she's like, okay, so by you venting about all the things you don't want this book to be, actually, you've presented me with a thesis of what this could be. And I think you know, I felt confident about what I believed and what I wanted to offer people. I wanted people to have a book that felt like a friend Mm. and that felt like a friend who had been there and who was mindful of all the triggers, who was mindful of sharing information that might be re-traumatizing and navigating that with you, but who also could laugh with you and be beside you and offer strategies that might be useful without being prescriptive. And I didn't know I was allowed to do that. And I think Mm. finding the right partner in my editor and then my agent, they really gave me sort of the space to be like, oh, well, actually you get to create something that is different. Because as you know, there is a real limited options of what's available to us. There's none. If you go to Barnes and Noble, there's literally, there's still Courage to Heal, which is this like massive tome that I wanted, just couldn't like stand. Which was written the year I was born, by the way. 27 million years ago. Yeah. A hundred percent. And that was all that was available. So, and like, I remember I had a rip out sheet on like how to talk to your partner when you're triggered. And I was like, ew. I just remember being like, ew, this just feels bad to me. And then as you mentioned in your book, and you do quite a big breakdown on it in your book, The Body Knows the Score. And that book I threw across the room in like a fit of rage. I was like, I don't know what this is going to do for me, but take time out of my life. So when you broke it down, I was like, everyone recommends it. Constantly. I'm like, stop. Recommendation. And I'm like, this book opens with him asking us to empathize with this Vietnam War veteran who rapes a Vietnamese woman and then kills an innocent Vietnamese man. And without any regard for the Vietnamese man and his family or the Vietnamese woman and her family and asks us to identify with this soldier while completely re-traumatizing us while reading. This is in the preface of this book. This is the preface, you know? And it's like it's so pathologizing these clinicians who write about us 
so often leave us feeling like, okay, well, there is some useful information to better understand the science of what's happening to me. But the price I had to pay for that information is that now I feel like a traumatized lab rat that you're studying with fascination. (laughs) And that's so dehumanizing. It is. It is. And it's true. I wanted to try to pull from it the kernels of like, I do believe in like neurology and I do want to retrain my brain and I do want to get out of the loops, but I don't need all that. It could have been just done in like a a pamphlet. Exactly. Like give me 10 point (laughs) bullet points of like neuroscience for dummies and like this is your brain on trauma. (laughs) Yes. And let me go my merry way because yeah, I mean, it is it is so wild the popularity of that book. I mean, I'm I'm grateful that he popularized this understanding of a contemporary understanding of trauma mm-hmm. and memory. But that's sort of where it begins and ends for me. That's where that's where it begins and ends for me too. I love what the promotion of your book says. Survivors of child sex abuse are inundated with untrue stories of their abuse, the aftermath, and what their healing journey should look like. And the truth in these stories are a bunch of hot garbage. I love that, (laughs) which I agree. And we just, we're at this point now where we want to shape books around these untruths because that really needs to be better told in the world. When did you know that was your focus? Like, what was the aha moment? Was it in the editor's office or was it kind of later as you were unfolding the book? I think it was in my editor's office. And she, Charlotte Ashlock, she is extraordinary at her job and a really special person. And she really helped me understand that that's what was coming up for me is that I was, I was approaching our conversation in a space of being totally exasperated and exhausted Mm. by not only these untrue stories, but what I felt like were sort of these pigeonholed binaries that either we were, each chapter sort of is focuses on an untrue story that is a different aspect of our lives. So in our romantic lives that either we were broken and had too many needs or we were perfectly healed and love was going to like transform us. <laughs> and we were, <laughs> right. you know, trauma was not ever going to impact it again. You know, I'm, I was just so exhausted mm-hmm. by feeling all of this pressure and that surely if I felt this pressure, other people were feeling this pressure too. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, it's the benefit also of having written on the internet for a long time before writing a book which is that you get to do your own market research. You know, I was able to understand from my incredible community, like what was it that was sort of, we were all exhausted by, like all of us were worrying that we had too many needs to be a good friend and that we were then isolating ourselves in friendship because we felt like we had too many needs and we didn't know what to do about that. All of us felt like somehow our bodies were completely broken, but, and also being pathologized. All of us felt like so much pressure around what it takes to like, sort of not be traumatized while you're actively being traumatized in a workplace and feeling shame that you found a workplace re-traumatizing. And so I really, I was really so lucky that I had so much insight from this community. And, and I'm really proud of how many community members felt comfortable sharing their story and their truth with me that I was able to incorporate in the book because that was so important to me is that I'm one person with one person's experience. 
but to get to have so many other people's voices and wisdom shared throughout the book is really like the greatest privilege to me. That's amazing. Oh, I think that's a wonderful nod to just making sure that we remember that there are a lot of people out there that have been through surviving sexual assault, you know, sexual abuse, physical abuse, verbal, all of it, and that they have something to share. And if you have a platform for that, then it also informs you for writing your book. And I too did not want to write, as I call them, an I was fucked in the closet memoir. That is not something that I wanted to write. So let's talk about this mythical perfect victim, which I think you were just alluding to. It creates sort of like a sense of lunacy, right? Like, am I, am I not? Do I, do I not? Am I anorexic sexually or am I promiscuous sexually? And in terms of like the word crazy, right? Mm. How have you grappled with that word in terms of recovery and what kind of reaction do you have to it? Like, I'm feeling Mm. crazy about what I'm Mm. going through. See, you know, it's funny, I, crazy, it, I realized this when I was writing, I was like, crazy means nothing to me anymore. And mm. I think that that is actually quite liberating to me. I think I used to be so afraid that I was losing my mind and that I was crazy. <laughs> right. Right. And, you know, especially being a heterosexual woman, then at my, in my 20s, dating heterosexual men, which in and of itself is like an absolute nightmare and then add trauma. And with my own internalized misogyny, being so afraid of being seen as like the crazy girl with daddy issues yeah. that I don't know. I think at this stage in my life, crazy means absolutely nothing to me. And Mm, it's um, liberating. It's so liberating. liberating. It's really liberating. It's sort of, it reminds me of this Fiona Apple lyric in the song. She has a paper bag. She's having this conversation with this man in the, in the song. And she, she says, he goes, he said, it's all in your head. And I said, so is everything, but he didn't get it. You know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> right. I love Fiona Apple. So I love great. Fiona Apple. She's amazing. And, um, and so, yeah, I find it quite freeing um, mm-hmm. for it to not have any hold over me anymore. And I think that a lot of that stems from just unpacking my own internalized shame and the shame that people try to impose upon me for what I've been through and the ways that I've survived and endured. Yeah. And so I also noticed, and you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a wordsmith like you, so I, I pick up on whether words are there or not. And I noticed that the word incest, I didn't see the word incest in your book. Is there a yeah. reason why you decided to, I'm, I'm getting the impression yeah. you are a survivor of incest. Yes. 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 Okay. Yes. So what was your choice to not use that word? It didn't feel super conscious for me because in my work, I've been using the term CSA and childhood sexual abuse. Mm. So, so casually, you know, sort of as my everyday vernacular. Right. Um, And so I always center harm that happens within families. But I think the reason I didn't use incest in part is because I wanted to be inclusive of people's experiences. For me, it's not a word, again, that I have any particular like um, visceral or emotional connection or lack thereof to. It it, Mm -hmm. it is a very, in that sense, it's become quite neutral to me. For me, I'm more sensitive and mindful of the reader coming to this project and feeling seen and included. And I think that for so many people, I know language is super loaded. I, I put a caveat in the beginning of the book, 
I don't care what words people use to describe what they've been through or if they don't feel like they have the right words to. I, I think it's important to see that as a limitation of language and not an indictment on like the validity of somebody's experiences. You right. know, I don't really care what words people use as long as they know that their pain matters and that they're mm -hmm. worthy of compassion and healing. And so I think I use broader terms in part to help meet people where they are, understanding that that word might make somebody who's like, oh, well, I was harmed, but it was by somebody who isn't technically in my family. A cousin or, or a cousin, right. Which Yeah, yeah. or a, a teacher or or a trusted you Although know, a community a member. Cousin. Yeah, right, yeah, right, like a, a community member. community member yeah, or something right. like that. You mm. know, for me, the real significance is that is one to center harm that happens within families. It's statistically very likely that if somebody was sexually abused, it's within so, so some sort of person who performs some sort of parental role in a child's life. Mm. So it's important to center that. But also the other part of it is that even if your harm doer wasn't a family member, I fundamentally believe that CSA is a family issue and that we have to center the family in our healing because it's not just about the abuse. It's about everything that happened after. And often it's everything that happened or didn't happen after that harm that leaves like the longest lasting impacts on us as we try to live our lives and heal. And so, you know, I have worked and coached with survivors who were harmed by people who were genuine strangers, which is uncommon, but does happen. But still, the foundational aspects of healing really had to be within those family relationships because those are the people who are responsible for protecting us and also for the accountability or lack thereof that happens in the aftermath. Yeah. Amazing. I think that's incredible. I agree with you 100%. I still am triggered by the word incest, but my sexual abuse was with my dad. So I, I still am working through a little bit of like an ick factor when I share that because you can almost feel people be like, ooh, like mm, that's the, yeah. they think they think that's the worst abuse. I'm like, it's all bad. I'm like, it doesn't really matter, you know, in, yeah. in terms of fact of who did what to who. It could happen to you for five seconds. It could happen to me for 10 years. You've been breached. You've been yes, breached. absolutely. And I'll tell you, like, people will shame survivors and try to impose their shame onto survivors because of their own bullshit, Yeah. regardless of what words we use. And I think that's part of it, too, is that I went through different stages of like saying things one way versus the other or this and that and the other. And I realized, you know, like rape culture is so fucking pervasive and people are <laughs> like, it doesn't really matter. You know, like it doesn't really matter. Right. Mental mm -hmm. gymnastics that are imposed upon survivors that we're supposed to prioritize other people's comfort over our safety and well-being. And we're conditioned by abuse to do that. And once I realized like, oh, even if I try to prioritize other people's comfort <laughs> over, you know, my own truth and my own needs, it's still like there's, you know, people for whom are conditioned by the world around us, which all of us are because we live in this world to invalidate survivors. That's their, you know, they're still going to fucking do that, whether yeah, I call are. it this, that or the other. It's true. It's it's almost like we can't we can't win. So no, this no, book... it's a scam. It's the ultimate scam. It's the <laughs> it's ultimate, the ultimate scam. scam. I know. It's true. It's true. So this book is done. What's next? Uh, what's next is just trying to heal. <laughs> <I'm writing the laughs> book. I uh, 
have only written one book. I've only lived through one global pandemic. Um, so I don't have a lot to compare to. But writing a book during a global pandemic was really too much. And, you know, having to travel sort of back in time in order to know what I needed to hear during the most vulnerable times in my trauma and my healing I didn't know how to do that without sort of reliving my past and doing that while my present was unbearable Mm -hmm. uh, really Mm -hmm. was such a mind fuck. And it's going to take time to sort of heal from that. And right now I'm just really enjoying doing life affirming things with the people I love and being dumb and silly and stupid together because that's what's healing for me. <laughs> that's, a, that's amazing. That's amazing. And whatever whatever the next book is, it will reveal itself in the time because you're a brilliant writer and I loved your voice. And I loved, I mean, I read your book and I was like, this could be like not an abuse book and I would be enjoying it like any other amazing writer that I picked up. So let's just end with offering some practical strategies for survivors of sex abuse or or CSAs as you call them, um, which I love. Is there a couple tips that you could give them for if they're just starting their healing journey? Yeah, I would say if you're just starting your healing journey, actually, regardless of where you are in your healing journey, be kind and compassionate towards yourself. There is no race. There is no (laughs) collect $200. There's no Um, there, there, right? There's no there, there. It's just about taking time to radically care for yourself in the way that you so richly deserve and undoubtedly have been denied and getting curious about what it means to prioritize your own safety and well-being, especially over the comfort of other people and just allowing yourself to be curious about what that looks like for you or what that can mean. You know, I think that our healing not only is so specific to each of us, it changes for each of us throughout time. What healing means to me today is different than when it met a year ago and a year from now. And so my advice is to be compassionate and gentle with yourself. Take lots of breaks and know that anything you're doing on your healing journey, whether it's exploring a boundary or making calls to find a therapist or doing something that gets you connected back into your body, all of it is work. And I think it is the hardest work you can do. And so it requires rest. It requires patience and kindness and understanding. And I think that whatever we can do to offer ourselves the time and the space to connect with our own inner experts is great because what I need for my healing is different than what you need, but each of us has to get in touch with that inner expert that's going to tell us what we need. So get curious, experiment, be gentle with yourself about ways to connect with that. Absolutely. And pick up your book. Pick up your and book. And pick up my book. Uh, pick available up for pre-order book. wherever books are sold. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really, it's just meant a, a ton to me. and and also my audience. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to You Should Write a Book About That. We love reviews. If you enjoyed our show, 
head over to your platform of choice to drop a review, share with a friend, or even better, if you want to write a book, be in touch. You can find us at kimohara.com.